This is the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, episode number six, Christmas Hazards. Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast, where it's all about small animal emergency and critical care. Primary survey, secondary survey, analgesia, fluids, shock, trauma. We've got it covered. And now, here's your host, never afraid to bring the jibber jabber, it's Shailen Jassani. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk podcast with me, Shailen Jassani. Given that today is December the 19th, I thought for this episode, I would just run through some of the potential hazards that you may find yourself treating in the next week or two. Before I do that, I wanted to just say thank you to Mel the Vet and to someone with the name of Volklet for your five-star ratings and review comments on iTunes. As always, I very much appreciate uh, the feedback that you guys send me. Okay, so let's talk about Christmas hazards. I'm not sure if there are any published statistics, but I think it's fair to say that there is a higher incidence of poisoning, especially in dogs, around this time of the year. I'm sure it wouldn't have escaped your notice that the internet and social media is full at this time of the year with posts that are written by everyone and their grandma about the hazards that pets face. And... Indeed, this is something of an annual ritual. So every year at this time of the year, you will see, you know, a sort of blossoming of posts all about the risks that animals face during the Christmas period. And it's it's certainly a very real risk. And despite all the available information, we know that dogs especially are exposed to things that we rather they weren't. The three main scenarios, I guess, are... <clears throat> Firstly, the pet just scavenges something poisonous themselves. Secondly, that their loving pet carers, blissfully unaware of the dangers, offer their beloved pet a holiday treat or two. After all, if pets are part of the family and the rest of the family is having a good time and having lots of treats at Christmas, why should the pets go without, right? And then the third scenario is where children that really aren't able to comprehend the dangers Um, offer the pet something poisonous and actually I should say and I'm sure some of you recognize this scenario as well that we also do see cases where adults who have had a few two glasses too many of sherry or some other alcoholic beverage um, have gone and offered the pet something that they really shouldn't have and that can sometimes result in some quite significant consequences Clearly, there are a large number of potential poisons and other hazards to which pets may be exposed. And obviously, I don't have the time in a podcast like this to go into many of them in much detail. So I thought what I would do is just mention a few. And for most of them, I'm just going to remind you of the high-level bits of information that you need to be aware of. But I also am going to go into detail for a couple of the ones that I think you're more likely to see or where I think there are certain points that, are, that it's worthy of me making in this episode. Um, I'm sure that you are familiar with a lot of what I'm going to say, but I hope that this episode can just be a bit of a refresher for you 
share it around with your colleagues, make sure everyone's aware of the sorts of things that we need to be looking out for. Now, in all seriousness, where else would I start if it wasn't with chocolate, right? So the toxic substance in chocolate is theobromine, which is a methylxanthine-derived alkaloid that occurs naturally in cacao beans and is found in chocolate, cocoa powder, and other products that are uh, produced from these beans. In addition, chocolate also contains a lesser amount of caffeine, which is also a methylxanthine. You will, of course, remember that the concentration of theobromine varies in different sources. So plain dark chocolate and cooking chocolate generally contains significantly more theobromine than milk chocolate. And the theobromine content of white chocolate is considerably lower. I remember not that long ago responding to an advice call from a client about her Labrador. Of course, it has to be a Labrador, right? Um, her Labrador had eaten some white chocolate. And we decided just for the exercise of it to try and work out how much he would have had to have eaten for it to be toxic. And it worked out to be something like a wheelbarrow full of white chocolate. Now, obviously, we have to take each case on an individual basis, but theobromine poisoning from white chocolate is pretty rare. Um, Cocoa beans, cocoa powder, and cocoa shell mulches contain the highest concentrations of theobromine, and the literature contains reports of deaths in dogs following consumption of chocolate, cocoa powder, cacao bean shells, and cocoa bean mulch. One point that I do want to make and emphasize is that we have to be very careful to make sure that we try and get all the information we can from the pet's carers because we know that some chocolate products may contain other potential hazards. So it's not just about the theobromine and the caffeine, but the other question that we need to be always aware of is what else might there be in the chocolate item that the pet has consumed? And as I mentioned before, we're obviously talking predominantly hear about dogs so what sort of things am i thinking of well i'm thinking in particular of chocolate products that may have raisins currants or sultanas in them and then diabetic chocolate products will most likely contain xylitol and indeed some products can contain peanuts which are potentially harmful to some dogs as well and you know we need to be very aware of those sorts of things when we are deciding or providing advice to people about whether we need or do not need to see their pet, and when deciding what sort of treatment considerations we need to take into account. Now, theobromine toxicity is what we refer to as a dose-dependent toxicity, which essentially, as the name implies, means that whether or not an individual animal develops the toxidrome, and indeed how severe their signs are, will depend on the exposure dose. So it's called dose-dependent. It's pretty self-explanatory. I'm sorry that I felt the need to explain it to you, um, but that's basically what it means. You can find information relating to toxic doses in a variety of online and offline resources, and I don't think anyone needs to be trying to memorize this information. All you really need to do is to make sure you know where you're going to get the information from when you need it. So what does theobromine do? Well, without going into much detail, theobromine, and for that matter, caffeine, stimulate the central nervous system, 
with consequent neurological, muscular, cardiac, and or respiratory effects. Theobromine also causes smooth muscle relaxation, especially of the bronchi and renal diuresis. Clinical signs usually develop within 24 hours of ingestion, but it is typically much sooner than that and quite often within about four hours. And the signs can persist for, you know, even up to 48 to 72 hours in some cases. The commonly reported clinical signs include things such as vomiting, abdominal discomfort, restlessness, excitability, ataxia, tachycardia, antichypnia, or panting. And then in more severe cases, there may be muscle rigidity, muscle tremors, hypothermia, seizures, and dysrhythmias. Urinary incontinence, polyuria, and polydipsia may also occur. And in cases that prove to be fatal, those cases often have severe seizures and or cardiovascular compromise. When you see a case of chocolate poisoning, whether or not you do any testing, that decision is going to be made on an individual case basis. And you certainly don't have to do testing in a lot of the cases that you're going to see. But there will be some patients in which doing some form of emergency database, potentially an ECG, will be appropriate. So as always, it's individual case basis, but certainly a large amount of, a large proportion of the cases you're going to see, it's not really necessary to do any kind of testing on that patient. Treatment-wise, then routine gastrointestinal decontamination is indicated in appropriate cases. Absorption of theobromine from the GI tract is relatively slower in dogs compared to people. And in dogs, complete absorption from the gastrointestinal tract can potentially take as long as 10 hours. And so as theobromine is absorbed slowly in dogs, gastric emptying may be appropriate even after a significant delay. But obviously we need to avoid inducing emesis in animals that have contraindications such as significant hyperactivity, other forms of neurological compromise, respiratory issues, and so on. Theobromine undergoes enterohepatic circulation, so repeated use of charcoal may enhance elimination. There's no specific antidote for theobromine, as is often the case when we're dealing with poisons, and therapy is otherwise symptomatic and supportive. Those two words, in fact, are ones that you will find written in a lot of resources with respect to a lot of different poisons. Now, as far as chocolate poisoning goes then, treatment may include intravenous fluid therapy, anti-emetic administration, sedation if excitability is excessive, and routine treatment of seizures. And anti-dysrhythmic therapy may also be indicated in some cases, but I'm not going to go into much detail about all of that. As always, if you have any questions, do feel free to just get in touch and and ask away really. The prognosis with chocolate poisoning is generally good with appropriate treatment, but it may be worse for animals showing marked cardiovascular or neurological signs at presentation. Okay, so that's enough about chocolate. I want to move on and talk about the vitis vinifera fruits, otherwise known as grapes, raisins, currants, and sultanas. In the context of the Christmas period, Grapes are probably less of a worry, but the others are certainly of concern. 
poisoning in dogs has been recognised since the late 1990s. And I think, or at least I hope, that the majority of veterinary people will now be aware of this poisoning. As far as I know, there are no confirmed cases reported in cats, but they may be susceptible. I think we just don't know for sure either way at the moment whether this can or cannot be a problem in cats. One of the key points about this poisoning is that the same poisoning syndrome may occur following consumption of all types of these fruits, including those manufactured organically and regardless of whether the product has been cooked or not. It is also important to remember that exposure may occur through ingestion of products containing these fruits amongst their ingredients. So, for example, some of the chocolates, we've mentioned chocolates already, um, you know, they could have these fruits contained within them. And we also know that these fruits are found, for example, in Christmas cakes, in Christmas puddings, maybe in mince pies, and so on. With all of the potential foodstuffs around over the Christmas period, it is clear to see why dogs may end up consuming some of these fruits. So what is known about the toxicity associated with grapes, raisins, currants or sultanas? Well, the simple answer to that question is not much. We know that ingestion may be associated with renal toxicity, but the toxin or indeed toxins involved have yet to be identified and the mechanism of toxicity is unknown. But the key point for you to be aware of is that at this time, I think it is still fair to say that this is considered a non-dose dependent or an idiosyncratic type of toxicity. I am sure you'll be familiar with this story, but there are reports of some dogs eating large amounts of these fruits with no apparent ill effect. And on the flip side, there are reports of dogs developing acute kidney injury after consuming only tiny amounts. There is some debate in this area, but I think that the most reasonable working position at this time is that we should consider any dog at risk if they consume any of these fruits, regardless of how much. And in fact, we don't even know whether a dog that has previously eaten these fruits and seemingly been fine could, on the next occasion that they had some, go on and develop acute kidney injury. We just don't know. And with that in mind, I recommend that all cases are treated, and moreover, that all cases are treated as soon as possible. There is so much more I could say about this, but this is not really the time. However, if anyone wants to discuss this further, as always, just get in touch and I'm happy to chat about it. In terms of clinical signs, vomiting is reported in almost all cases, usually within 24 hours of ingestion, and fruits may be identified in the vomitus. Vomiting may be related to dietary indiscretion or indeed down the line if the patient's gone on and actually developed renal toxicity and some degree of azotemia, then that may also cause vomiting. But a specific effect of these fruits is also suspected because vomiting is very common according to the literature reports in dogs that have been exposed to these fruits. And so it may be that actually something in those fruits is actually and emetogenic, or causing the dog to vomit. Other clinical signs that may develop include non-specific things such as anorexia and lethargy. There may be some diarrhea and potentially some abdominal pain, and also hypersalivation has been reported. 
Now, treatment-wise, gastrointestinal decontamination is indicated, performing gastric emptying if the dog is not already vomiting, and then starting treatment with activated charcoal. Based on what I said previously, I then recommend that all these cases are hospitalized and kept on intravenous fluid therapy for a minimum of 48 hours at a rate that is usually around 4 mils per kilo per hour, but it does depend on the clinical situation of the individual patient. What you have to realize is that there is no study or evidence base for this. The duration and the rate of fluid therapy is somewhat empirical. A while back, I had a question from a listener, Rachel, about the rate of fluid therapy in patients that are exposed to nephrotoxins. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to respond to that question in more detail in the next episode of this podcast. But I'll tell you more about the next episode later on in this episode. You know, a beneficial effects of fluid therapy on outcome in dogs exposed to grapes, etc. Um, that has not actually been demonstrated. And indeed, it would be very difficult to provide this evidence, mainly because of the idiosyncratic nature of this toxicity. I mean, how could you randomize dogs to either receive or not to receive fluid therapy when you don't even know which dogs are going to be affected by the toxins? So although we recommend that those cases that we see that have you know, been exposed to the toxin fairly recently, we perform gastrointestinal decontamination, and people like me still recommend that they stay hospitalized on fluid therapy, but I'm honest enough to say that there's no evidence base for that. So why do we do it? Well, we do it because there are theoretical reasons why fluid therapy should help those patients. So for example... Fluids will hopefully promote renal elimination of any toxin that is absorbed. You will hopefully minimize how long the renal tubules are exposed to the toxin. And indeed, if tubular injury occurs and casts form, then keeping these moving and preventing them from blocking the tubules is also beneficial. Given the potential seriousness of the acute kidney injury from this toxicity that I mentioned earlier, I am comfortable with the recommendation to treat all cases. Now, of course, I realize that this is not ideal. Aside from the cost to the client, often these are young dogs and they're healthy in all other ways, and they're not that keen on being stuck in a kennel for two to three days, and sometimes they pull their catheter out and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, my recommendation remains, and I guess all I could say is that if my own dog was exposed to some of these fruits... I think I would do my utmost best to make sure that he stayed on fluids for a period of time. The standard recommendation is to run a baseline blood renal profile and to perform urinalysis and to then repeat these tests, let's say 48 to 72 hours later, before discharging the patient. Even if the renal panel remains within normal limits, it is worth looking at a urine sediment for casts before you discharge the patient. Because if you find cast, then that might suggest that the individual dog has suffered some degree of tubular injury, and that may prompt a change in your plan. In cases that develop significant acute kidney injury and evidence of renal insufficiency, then the approach to those cases is pretty much standard management for that problem. I'm not going to say any more about that here, because I really don't have the scope in a podcast like this to go into the management of acute kidney injury. But if anyone has any questions about that, 
again as always please just feel free to get in touch and i'm happy to try and help you if i can okay so those were the two types of poison that i wanted to talk about in some detail because i do think that these cases are relatively common at this time of the year what i'm going to do now is i'm going to mention a number of others but variably in less detail so i really just want to make sure that you are thinking about them over the next week or two so let's talk about xylitol xylitol is a naturally occurring sugar alcohol found in low concentrations in various fruits and vegetables and basically it's extracted and then used extensively commercially one of its main uses is as a sweetener in low carbohydrate diabetic type products and over the christmas period in particular this may prove to be one of the main sources of exposure so for example if there are diabetic christmas cakes or diabetic chocolates lying around xylitol is also meant to reduce dental caries formation so it is increasingly used in various chewing gums sweets toothpaste and other oral care products Interestingly and somewhat worryingly to me anyway it is also found in some prescription drugs including veterinary ones as well as some vitamins and nutritional supplements and even some canine oral hygiene products Xylitol poisoning is reported in dogs there are no published reports of feline poisoning to my knowledge and there are basically two phases to the toxicity that it can cause in dogs So the first is a dose dependent increase in pancreatic insulin production that may result in hypoglycemia as well as other findings such as hypokalemia and hypophosphatemia. The hypoglycemia usually occurs quickly, certainly within a few hours, but it can be delayed and this will partly depend on the form in which the xylitol was ingested. Xylitol absorption from the gastrointestinal tract is typically rapid. but some of the products are slow release products and it also depends for example on how well the food item was chewed before it was swallowed the other thing that xylitol can do in dogs is to cause hepatotoxicity potentially resulting in liver insufficiency or failure the mechanism or the mechanisms for the hepatic injury and probable liver necrosis is not yet understood and this has a more delayed onset so typically say 72 hours but what's also important to realize is that it's difficult to predict which dogs will develop liver complications so not all dogs that develop hypoglycemia go on to have liver complications and on the flip side a dog may not suffer clinically significant hypoglycemia but still go on and have significant hepatotoxicity so you have to be vigilant with these cases While the hypoglycemia is considered a dose dependent effect at this time to my knowledge it has not been proven that the liver toxicity is dose dependent so hypoglycemia is known to be dose dependent the liver toxicity to my knowledge that has not been proven there is some suggestion that it might be and you may even find some people quoting a dose at which the the liver toxicity occurs But I have to say that personally until I see some proper definitive robust evidence I will continue to consider the hepatotoxicity to be a non-dose dependent phenomenon and to that end as I was saying when we talked about renal toxicity from grapes I recommend that all xylitol cases are also treated 
and are treated aggressively. At the end of the day, the liver failure may prove to be fatal, and so from my point of view, it's not a risk that I would recommend until and unless we can be sure that the hepatotoxicity is dose-dependent and also what the, tos- the, sorry, the toxic dose exposure is. I don't have the time to go into the management of xylitol exposure in detail, but in summary, it's a case of routine gastrointestinal decontamination. The evidence base for the use of activated charcoal with xylitol is tenuous, but having said that, we know that the risk-benefit profile of activated charcoal in general is in favour of benefits, so I would recommend its use here. If hypoglycemia develops, then it's just a case of supplementing glucose as required. This could be parenterally, it could be enterally, it could be both. And you basically just have to make that decision on an individual patient basis. And likewise, there's nothing particularly special to say about the management of the liver toxicity. It is just a case of standard approach, including symptomatic and supportive care, appropriate management if coagulopathy develops, possible use of hepatoprotectants, and of course treatment for hepatic encephalopathy if that occurs. I'm going to leave it at that, but as always, do feel free to get in touch if you have any questions about the management of liver failure. Prognosis-wise, the prognosis with hypoglycemia alone is generally good with timely and appropriate management. It's likely to be worse if the patient has repeated bouts of hypoglycemia especially if they're severe enough that they actually have CNS signs. And so it's essential that you both get on top of these patients quickly and also stay on top of them in terms of maintaining normal glycemia for what can be a sustained period of time. The prognosis is worse if you have sustained elevations in liver enzymes, considered guarded to poor with evidence of hepatic dysfunction, And if the patient actually develops full-blown acute liver failure, then the prognosis is sadly grave. And that, as I said, is partly why I don't like to take any chances myself until we have enough evidence about the liver toxicity that xylitol causes in dogs. Okay, so that's enough about xylitol for our purposes here. I wanted to say a little bit about dangerous foods that may be potentially found more commonly around Christmas time. So the ones I wanted to mention are the allium species. So those are onions, garlic, leeks, shallots, chives. These can be harmful even when cooked. They may cause vomiting and diarrhea, but potentially and more concerningly, they may also cause a non-immune-mediated hemolytic anemia in both dogs and cats. And we need to be vigilant because some of the less obvious sources of exposure include, for example, sage or onion stuffing or onion gravy what about nuts well personally i'm a huge fan of nuts and i imagine i'm not the only one but some nuts such as peanuts or macadamia nuts may cause vomiting and diarrhea but potentially also more severe signs affecting the nervous system or muscles and then you also have the potential of for example chocolate coated nuts and even chocolate coated nut and raisin combos It's a minefield out there in terms of the kinds of things that people might have in their houses, especially over the Christmas period. The other potential hazard that dogs in particular will face in the next week or two is mouldy food. 
especially at this time of the year, there's a lot more food that is potentially wasted and disposed of. And also, most local authorities tend to reduce the frequency of bin collections, for example. So I think it's fair to say that the risk has increased. And you will know that dogs that eat mouldy food can develop neuromuscular signs as a result of tremogenic mycotoxins. And this is a potentially fatal toxidrome that requires aggressive management. I'm not going to get into the management here, but I will remind you that this is one of the poisons for which you should use intravenous lipid emulsion in appropriate cases. If you have not yet listened to the episode, do check out episode number three of this podcast, which was all about intravenous lipid emulsion. And I will link to that episode in the show notes. The other thing is that if you want a one-page summary of an approach to tremogenic neuromuscular poisons, then check out the website at www.veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash six. And you will see there where the podcast is that there's a link box. Click on the link box, enter your email, and you will be sent a PDF for free of the one-page summary of a general approach to tremogenic neuromuscular poisons. Okay, so what about other potential hazards around this time of the year? Well, the first one is plants. We know that lilies may be given as gifts at Christmas time. And similar to the grape story in dogs, all types of lily can cause renal toxicity in cats. This has not been reported in dogs. Lily toxicity in cats is again considered to be a non-dose-dependent idiosyncratic toxicity. So all cases should be treated as soon as possible. And the approach is basically the same as I described earlier for grapes in dogs. It is important to remember that all parts of the plant can be toxic. And there are reports of acute kidney injury in cats that, for example, just stood on um, some of the pollen and then licked their paws. There are also cases where the cat drank some of the water from the vase and so on. So again, this is not one to be taking any chances with, in my humble opinion. Uh, mistletoe may cause drooling or vomiting, but generally not much else in dogs and cats. Poinsettia is one that gets a lot of attention on the internet, but it usually only causes irritation of the stomach or intestines in cats. It can be more serious, but it typically isn't. And something that I guess we don't really see much or think about often is that if parts of the Christmas trees are actually eaten, then the needles can cause damage and potentially obstruction of the GI tract. As I say, it's not something that I think we would see much at all, but just something to bear in mind. And then we have the hazard of potential foreign bodies. So dogs in particular may eat decorations or wrapping paper, and this can cause drooling, vomiting or diarrhea. But in the worst case scenario, you could cause or it could cause gastrointestinal obstruction. And we know, for example, that this is especially the case if a cat tries to eat some tinsel and then goes on to suffer a linear foreign body type of situation. And then we have weather-related weather hazards. So in countries where Christmas occurs during cold spells, some potential risks are going to include antifreeze or ethylene glycol. As you know, this causes dose-dependent renal toxicity in both dogs and cats. It is a terrible poisoning. All cases should be treated as soon as possible, 
but you will know, I'm sure, that often by the time we see these patients, the prognosis is sadly grave. The other thing that may happen around Christmas time for a number of reasons, partly related to the weather, partly related to overconsumption of alcohol, um, is that there may be a lot of human medications lying around to which pets may be exposed. So one, for example, is paracetamol or acetaminophen. Now, thankfully, cats don't tend to indulge too much in this, and certainly we don't see it as often as dogs, but you will remember that cats are also much more susceptible. Aspirin and other NSAIDs, for example, ibuprofen, they're a potential problem that we will see. And, you know, NSAIDs as a source of poisoning in dogs in particular, again, is one of the most common that you're going to see in routine practice. And that situation is not necessarily any different around Christmas. There are also things like over-the-counter decongestants that can be a problem and so on. And of course, when we're talking about human medications... Sadly, sometimes it's not a case of self-exposure on the part of the pet, but rather that their, that their carer may inadvertently or being misinformed administer the medication to the pet. And especially as a lot of clinics will be closed for some period of time over the next couple of weeks and out-of-hours consultations typically cost more money, pet carers may be more tempted than usual to take it upon themselves to treat their pets which can have potentially disastrous consequences. Okay, so I'm going to stop there, and I hope that you found this episode to be a useful reminder and refresher of some of the potential hazards you will be treating in the next couple of weeks. Don't forget that if you would like that one-page summary of the general approach to tremogenic neuromuscular toxins, go to the website at www veteccsmalltalk.com forward slash episode forward slash six and click on the link the next episode of this podcast will be in two weeks time and what i've decided to do for the next episode is to dedicate the episode to responding to some questions that i've received from listeners i've had two or three questions recently that relates to fluid therapy and the use of fluid therapy in various ways. And so I thought I would spend the next episode answering those questions as it seemed to make sense to deal with them all together. If you have any questions that you would like me to address in future podcast episodes, just let me know. And as always, if you're finding these podcasts useful, I would be very grateful if you could take a few seconds to rate or review them, either in iTunes or indeed in Stitcher Radio. I really do appreciate all the feedback that I receive. This is obviously the last episode of 2014, and so I wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you for your support and your interest. I started the Veterinary ECC Small Talk project about six months ago now, I think, and then the podcast followed a while later. And I am really grateful for everyone that participates on Facebook, listens to the podcast, sends me feedback and so on. So really, thanks very much for that. I imagine a fair number of you will be working shifts over the Christmas and New Year period. I hope that it goes well. And do feel free to reach out via Facebook or the website if you need any advice or indeed if you just want some moral support from people that understand what you are facing. And remember that 
during all of the chaos that might ensue, it is important that you take care of yourself and this will allow you to take best care of your patients, their carers and your teammates. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year and I look forward to some more ECC small talk and jibber jabber in 2015. Until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Veterinary ECC Small Talk Podcast. Please share your thoughts and comments on www.veteccsmalltalk.com or hit us up on social media. Until next time, keep up the small talk and the jibber-jabber.